This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Today's podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today's guest is Dr. Jerry Kreiner, and the topic of discussion is current gaps in the diagnosis, assessment, and treatment of COPD. He co-authored a manuscript in the Annals entitled Current Controversies in Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, a report from the Gold Scientific Committee, which addressed some of these issues. So Dr. Kreiner is professor and chair of the Department of Thoracic Medicine and Surgery at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, also, of course, here in Philadelphia, and he's an an accomplished national uh, and international expert uh, in the field. So, Jerry, welcome, and thanks for joining the podcast. Well, thanks for the honor of doing this, Greg. Really appreciate it. Great, and I'm looking forward to our discussion of this obviously very common and, and really important topic. So let's jump in. So, Jerry, what was the major impetus for this report in the first place? I think many people know the GOLD COPD report that comes out on an annual basis. And and GOLD is really um, the eponym for the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. And the overall mission of GOLD is to really have a clinically relevant document that clinicians can use um, to improve the diagnosis, assessment, and prevention of COPD, and also increase awareness of the disease while simultaneously making some, uh, I guess, observations and, and in some cases speculation of what, about what needs to be done in the future to stimulate new research. So what we put in a gold report every year is really evidence-based medicine. Really, um, the recommendations that come are really the derivatives of randomized controlled trials and it's updated annually to reflect more recent knowledge. But as many clinicians know, there's a lot that we don't know that you encounter in daily practice each day that there's not a lot of good data <clears throat> to tell you what to do. So what we do annually now is that we have a conference where we talk about issues that we can't make certain recommendations, and we talk about them to really um, create a climate where the field is more organized to address the current gaps in our knowledge regarding the things about COPD diagnosis and treatment. So that's what the the focus of this report is, to really highlight the gaps in our knowledge about COPD and to really um, make some provocative statements about what needs to be done in the future to address those gaps. So, so thanks, Jerry. And I've, I've actually obviously used the, the gold publications over a period of years to as a reference guide, so I think uh, it's been a great initiative, and the fact that it's really has international contributions is, has really been quite helpful. So, you know, one of the messages from the report uh, that came through loud and clear is to remind all of us that COPD is a complex disease, and it really is a disease that results from more than just cigarette smoking. So a couple of things I wanted to touch on. So first of all, what is pre, pre-COPD? You mentioned that uh, in the publication. I think it's important for the clinicians to, to get a sense of the thinking about, uh, about pre-COPD. Yeah, that's a good point, Greg. I mean, um, pre-COPD is another way of of really talking about, which was considered in previous renditions of the Gold Report about a decade and a half ago as uh, Gold Zero. I'm sure you can remember that, where people had risk factors but didn't have airflow obstruction. Yep. And this is a recognition that uh, data that's 
kind of more recent from spiromics, but really had been really um, addressed previously or brought up. And I think many clinicians know that patients can have symptoms who smoke uh, of cough and mucus production and exacerbation-like symptoms, and they don't really have spirometric obstruction. So you really can't classify them as COPD by the current definition that exists. But we know that some of those patients, and there's been some good data that suggests that these patients, even if they don't have airflow obstruction, they have symptoms. Later on in life, they could have symptoms. A number of these people by COPD gene and CANCOL data end up having emphysema and air trapping if you did CT analysis on them. So it's clearly that these people have a burden of disease, clinical symptoms, and some other manifestations that are consistent with COPD, but they don't have um, the degree of obstruction that uh, is current in the definition. So I think pre-COPD is a recognition of that, that there's people that have the symptoms of COPD, they're treated like that, clinicians treat them, and they get better with that treatment. And we need to recognize that, and maybe that's one of the the ideas from this report is perhaps we need to revisit our definition of COPD and see if basically um, the criteria for airflow obstruction is something that's one of the features but not a prerequisite for all patients that may be at risk. Got it. And, the, you know, the other thing obviously is that it's interesting that the, that the roots of this disease can sometimes be traced all the way back to, to early life. So, so one of the things that you talked about also was the, the idea of these childhood disadvantage factors. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Jerry? Yeah, there's been some re- recent papers that have highlighted that, um, you know, the, the time-honored uh, uh, concept was that patients, everybody has normal lung development, <clears throat> they smoke or have some other insult, then they uh, their lung function deteriorates over time, and in some it deteriorates so much that they end up with airflow obstruction and they meet the criteria for COPD. But there's been several studies now, one by Lang, uh, Augusti, uh, Vespo, and Chelly that was in New England Journal of Medicine, and a separate one from the CAMP program by McEachie that looked at uh, kids with childhood asthma. And they showed in both of these cohorts that some at an early age don't have normal lung development as reflected by normal spirometry. And they can end up having perhaps airflow obstruction later on in life that it's the equivalent of gold two or three or four disease, but they never really had lung development overall. And the trajectory of decline in those that didn't have normal lung development isn't steep from adolescent to adulthood, like it may be in some that have normal lung development and then have some noxious stimulus and lose lung function over a period of time at a much greater deterioration rate. So are these diseases the same? when they reach a clinician at adulthood, those who never had normal lung development compared to those who did have normal lung development, their rate of decline is different, their escalation of disease and treatment may be different, and does that also lead to opportunity to treat and identify people earlier on in life that may develop airflow obstruction, even as an adolescent, where we could intercede before the airflow obstruction becomes fixed. So it brings up this whole thing about um, really, what are the risk factors for developing airflow obstruction greater in life, and is it due to a host of factors that may not only happen uh, postnatum, but it could be peripartum or antenatum that they may occur because of uh, things that may even happen in utero. And even in the absence of cigarette smoking, correct? Even in the absence of cigarette smoking. I mean, one of the things that's uh, very um, 
impressive to me from being a member of Gold for the last couple of years is this global focus on a disease. And, you know, in the developed countries, it's mainly cigarette smoking is the major cause. But in other parts of the world, it's biomass fuel exposure, mainly in women who are using it to cook in areas of poor ventilation or occupational um, hazards that they uh, encompass at lower uh, socioeconomic um, developed countries um, and or emerging countries overall, and really knowing that different factors that create a similar pattern of fixed airflow obstruction throughout the world, I think really ex- extends our ability to try to um, be more uh, ecumenical in how we approach the disease and really think of other targets that may allow us to modify the disease in, in patients in any country. Terry, that segues very nicely into the next question I wanted to pose to you, and that is this issue of COPD and biomass uh, fume exposure. Um, So is it a different phenotype relative to what we see in this part of the world uh, related to cigarette smoking? Is it a different disease? Well, it has different features of the disease. I mean, the risk of developing uh, COPD is almost the same as cigarette smoking with biomass fuel exposure in terms of the incidence overall. And it's actually higher than that than reported for secondhand uh, smoke exposure overall. And if you look at people who smoke and do have biomass fuel exposure, their risk of developing COPD is double the risk of having either of those to independent factors. So that's one of the features that are different. The other thing is that people that have COPD from smoking uh, tend up uh, to have more emphysema than people that have biomass fuel exposure that tend to have more evidence of air trapping and peripheral airways disease and overall less respiratory symptoms of cough and mucus production. So um, how about COPD in women? There's a body of literature, obviously, uh, that certainly the prevalence and incidence um, um, has significantly increased and perhaps surpassed that in men. So, so what are the unique features about COPD that, that our clinical folks, our clinical colleagues should keep an eye on, and perhaps in terms of treatment, in terms of natural history, what, what do we need to know about that? Well, one of the most important thing is how common it is in women and how in some countries that patients dying of COPD are more likely to be women than men, which is a very sobering sort of difference that uh, – you know, is uh, is difficult to see when you you, you treat patients uh, that are women who have COPD, but it's not only difference in like the the outcomes overall. It, it may be related to certain features, such as women develop peak lung function a little bit earlier than men, uh, and yet even though they both start sm- smoking at the same age, women are more likely than men to uh, present with an early onset of disease with even emphysema or airflow obstruction in the mid-30s or even uh, the early 40s overall. And the rate of decline uh, in patients that smoke um, may be significantly faster in women than it is in men. So I think there's certain unique features uh, uh, to explain these differences in gender. But why they occur, we really don't know. We don't know whether it's differences in tobacco susceptibility, differences in the size of the lung, a difference in inhalation technique, um, or just as simple as that women's lungs may be anatomically smaller than men's, and for the dose of exposure that they get, they're going to have more of a different um, um, manifestation, a more severe manifestation of the disease. So it'll be very interesting to see what, what our experience and what additional research tells us about this. Great, Jerry. Thank you. 
Um, so there's been a large body of literature, obviously, about phenotyping the COPD population. So again, from the perspective of, of a clinician at the bedside, which phenotype or phenotypes uh, is or are the most important to identify? Is it the frequent exacerbator phenotype or, or something else or, or really a combination of things? What, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, I think there's probably two phenotypes that have been described in the literature that are easy for clinicians to identify and they see. One is the frequent and severe exacerbation phenotype group. And that kind of like highlights to the clinician. That's a patient with in, an unstable disease manifestation, uh, manifestation. And, you know, that's um, a morbid, in some cases, unfortunately, a mortal consequence of the disease. So trying to get control of the, that disease by preventing frequent and severe exacerbations, as outlined in gold and other documents, is something that the, the clinician can, can address. <clears throat> the second thing are those that are more rapid decline those that have deterioration of lung function despite the clinician treating them optimally. And the reasons for that aren't really well addressed. In some cases, it may be related to um, the patient's not being on appropriate therapy or the patient continuing smoking or the patient have recurrent lung infection or exacerbations. Or in some cases, it may be something in the environment like the occupation that the patient or, uh, the, uh, may be conducting that may be somewhat uh, harmful to their health. The other thing that I think all clinicians see, but we don't really have phenotyped it and dressed it enough, are those that are refractory to all the interventions that should be done. That patient group that you've given everything to and they continue to decline overall, that's the patient group that we need to address further to see what other adjunctive therapies that need to be done. And in some cases, it's just because we the, the disease is it's so clinically based that patients who have COPD may have escalation of respiratory symptoms that can mimic COPD, such as they have heart disease and whatever. They complain of chest tightness and shortness of breath. The recognition of comorbid conditions that could simulate an escalation of respiratory symptoms in a patient with COPD is something I think that we've better recognized over the last five to 10 years. It's an important feature but we haven't done much to be able to identify those patients with precision because we have no exact biomarker right now for COPD like we do for other diseases. So, yeah, you know what, that, that certainly mimics uh, what I see and what other people see, um, and they're really two very frustrating groups of patients to take care of because, as you mentioned, you know, our, our knowledge about how to take care of these folks and how to prevent the decline or the exacerbations is still pretty early on. So, and you know, this whole issue about frequent, frequent exacerbators is being applied, as you know, to other areas of diseases and et cetera. I mean, certainly there's some data about bronchiectasis, which is an area that I, group mm -hmm. patients that I see. So the whole thing is just very interesting. And I think, and, and you can tell me what you think, I think in the next several years, maybe the next decade or two, I think we're going to really hone down very precisely different subtypes. And maybe what we call COPD now will be split up into, you know, a couple of different diseases. Does that make sense to you? Is that, is that, Absolutely. I think if, you know, uh, if we can utilize the form thrust of the things that we can use to look at lung structure by imaging, physiologic response, and then clinical response, and then, you know, hopefully we're on the verge of having some endotyping features applied to COPD like we do with other diseases like asthma. Look at people that may have more of a TH2 phenotype with eosinophilic airway inflammation that we can target our therapy to patients most likely to respond for that therapy rather than treating all patients the same. Yeah. 
So one question that I, I've always had, Jerry, and, and that is about CT imaging. So apart from lung cancer screening, you know, when should the clinician obtain a CT scan in patients with COPD? Is, does it help to to find whether somebody's got emphysema or small areas disease? Obviously, they rule out other concurrent disease like ILD, but when do you, Jerry Kreiner, as a, as a recognized expert in the field, when do you say, I need to get, you know, more cross-sectional imaging on a patient with COPD? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the field um, has come a long way with the use of chest CT imaging. I mean, the imaging is good. The imaging has come down in price. The imaging is getting lower dose, so there's less of a radiation exposure. So for the most part, there's been significant, like, advances in the technical application and even the cost of the therapy overall in the last decade. And mirroring that is advances in um, clinical research uh, that's been conducted, and a lot of this is due to the strength of the uh, large observational studies that have used CT imaging as one of the modalities that have used to track a patient population overall, eclipse, can cold, COPD, gene, spiromics. Those are some some of the studies, large studies that have done that. And what they show is that <clears throat> the structure is somewhat uh, in sync with the physiology and the clinical symptoms, but at other times not. And sometimes the structural changes can precede the physiologic changes or even the symptoms that, that may occur. So just like you've noticed as a clinician, I too have noticed that if I have a patient that has structural evidence of bronchiectasis, it's about 8% of patients that was identified from COPD gene has smoking-related interstitial lung disease as well as airways disease, um, recognition by Jim Hogg and others that one of the first Changes that may happen pathologically in the lung of people with smoke exposure is they have dropout of peripheral airways overall before they get macro evidence of emphysema on a CT scan. Those are all things that suggest that the structural changes that occur in the lung, they're, they're protean in nature, and they're not all the same, and they can happen earlier in some patient um, subsets before it would manifest as like uh, symptoms of airflow obstruction, for which that allows us to maybe intercede earlier overall and prevent the progression of the disease. So how do I use the CT scan? I think the first thing that I do is whenever a CT scan is done for lung cancer screening or someone's got it for shortness of breath, the RUA PE, I look at the scan to make sure, besides the obvious, what they're looking for, that I maximize the information from looking at the things I just mentioned. Do they have evidence of pulmonary artery enlargement that would increase their risk for a severe or frequent exacerbation? Do they have evidence of secondary pulmonary hypertension? Do they have any evidence of interstitial lung disease or bronchiectasis overall? And, and I think those things, if we did those now, which we can do, then the next step will be in what patient group would you also do a CT scan, not just for lung cancer screening, but for defining other therapy. And I think one of the best examples is that, as you well know, is the use of uh, the first, like, radiographic phenotyping was for lung volume reduction surgery, where patients that had the phenotype of upper lobe predominant disease with heterogeneity were the patients that responded best to surgical intervention for lung reduction. Now that we have some modalities with bronchoscopic lung reduction are available, I now would use that in a patient that's failing medical therapy or not doing as well as what I would expect if they, I give them medical therapy based on just what their spirometry and symptoms should be. Then I would proceed to get a CT scan to see if there's another treatment uh, uh, feature that I could uh, add to that patient's regime. Perfect. 
So, Jerry, let's pivot to, to the really more formally the idea of treatment. So, one of the things that that was addressed in 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 the in the paper was bronchodilator therapy. And so, how should clinicians approach bronchodilator therapy in symptomatic patients? Should they jump in with maximal therapy at the start of uh, therapy with a llama lava, for example, or should you start with one and then progressively add on bronchodilators depending on uh, depending on um, the response, is there a right answer to this, and what do you do if there isn't a, a evidence-based yeah. answer? Well, I think <laughs> your question is a good one. Is there a right answer to that? And I think we don't really have the exact answer to that right now because we've never had a randomized controlled trial that compared maximal bronchodilation versus sequential bronchodilation to an outcome. And I actually think that's the study that would address the issue the best. So there's a divergence of opinion that some would take the um, the stance, well, treat the patient appropriately. If they have symptoms that could be managed by one agent, why give them two? And then there's another group that figures that that, that poses, well, if you can maximally bronchodilate somebody, how could that possibly be bad? Wouldn't that be better overall to improve the patient's activity? Well, we all know that a lot of patients that have Chronic obstructive lung disease are people that are older, aren't that physically active, and maybe that additional bronchodilator therapy won't improve their symptoms that much. But I think one of the um, features of maximal bronchodilation that could be most beneficial to patients is what their sleep pattern is like. There's not really a lot of good studies that look at pharmacologic therapy and the impact of that on sleep quality. But I think what I do is I ask my patients what their sleep is like. And if their sleep is poor and they're waking up frequently throughout the night, that patient that was, you know, I would consider using dual bronchodilator therapy if they don't have um, maximal benefit from a single therapy. And if they've had their symptom burden in terms of dyspnea is not really met by using single bronchodilator therapy, then I'll use dual bronchodilator therapy overall. So I think it's really the clinician using the patient's symptoms, their dyspnea, and other features of the disease that affects daytime activities and sleep that can help guide them to how much therapy a patient needs. But I think that first thing that I mentioned, the need for a study, is uh, what's pivotally important. Well, let's do it, Jerry. <laughs> we should do it. <laughs> <laughs> so another easy question for you. So when should we use inhaled corticosteroids? Um, yeah. This, well, I think that is something that more recent studies have helped with. I mean, we, we there's been many studies, actually five well-done uh, large uh, prospective randomized controlled trials that shows that with the use of an ICS with bronchodilator therapy, either mono or dual, that exacerbations, both the frequency and severity of them, are positively influenced. The other thing is derivative from these studies, mainly RCTs and retrospective analysis for the most part, it's shown that those patients that tend to benefit the most are those that have more peripheral blood eosinophilia. Some studies have shown that that matches and correlates with uh, airway eosinophilia measured by sputum eosinophilia overall. And that suggests that maybe we can start using uh, a blood biomarker to suggest differential treatment for patients. The data for that is evolving, um, but it's exciting that we might have a blood biomarker that could allow us to differentiate our therapies. 
The other thing that's clear is that from these studies, and it's actually tighter data overall in terms of like more confidence to say that it's true, and we have this in the revised gold report, is patients who have eosinophilopenia, who have like a peripheral blood eosinophil less than 100, those patients are less likely to respond to it um, in corticosteroid, and perhaps that group of patients we could avoid using them and decrease the risk that inhaled steroids overall have for this patient group. Great. And, again, that, that, that turns us very nicely into my next question. You know, this whole idea of blood eosinophilia and COPD, I think, is is a relatively new one for many of us. I mean, I, I never used to think of the role of eosinophils in, in, in the disease of COPD, and, but we've seen, you know, mepiluzumab now published in the in the treatment of, of, of COPD. So so tell us about that. Give us the, the current thinking about the role of eosinophilia, either pathophysiologically, you mentioned some, some implications for stratifying therapy, but but can you give us a quick summary of, of where we are with the role of eosinophils? Well, I think it's uh, evolving overall. I think we have some good data that shows that there's a, a continuum relationship between peripheral blood eosinophilia and somewhat with exacerbation risk, but definitely with indicating the treatment benefit of inhaled corticosteroids when the peripheral blood eosinophilia is greater than three or 400, and a lack of benefit in most patients when that value is below 100. So I think that's been duplicated in large data sets for right now. Those data sets, which I think it's important to note, really come out of clinical trials looking at treating exacerbations with different pharmacologic regimes in a patient groups that have been enriched because of their exacerbation history in the past. Now, those findings of peripheral blood eosinophilia with a relationship between exacerbation rate haven't always been found in observational studies that have looked at that, in studies pretty much that haven't been enriched for exacerbation. So is it important that the peripheral blood eosinophilia coupled with the exacerbation history is important for whatever reason that that is, um, as opposed to just the peripheral blood eosinophil level by itself? I think that's one of the things the things have, uh, we have to address in the future. The other thing is, how often should you measure it? Is it a continuum relationship that you use it as a guide when you're a clinician? Or is it an absolute number that you measure once and say if the patient's level is 299, do I measure it again? And how many times do I do that? And what's the conditions of measurement? How long do they have to be off systemic steroids, for example? And what's the impact of smoking, current smoking, on that level and that threshold? So I think a lot of what we know about it is intriguing. It's mainly randomized controlled trial data in exacerbation of rich subjects. But I think what we need to do is now um, do some other studies that can really show how we can transition this into clinical practice and how we can give some guidance on, on, on clinicians how to use this uh, potentially to enhance their treatment options. So I, wanted to, I just want to change gears a little bit and, and really talk about a very important part of the, the manifestations of COPD, and that is COPD exacerbation. So, so to get us all on, the, all on the same page, Jerry, so how is the COPD exacerbation, exacerbation currently defined? Can, can you just review with us the consensus definition that, that we're using? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that really hasn't changed much, and in my opinion, hasn't changed enough. Uh, in, it, to make it succinctly clear, exacerbations is still a clinical definition for of COPD. It's based on a change in symptoms 
and those symptoms are recognized by a patient to get a clinician's attention that results in a treatment. Um, that's more than just a change in bronchodilators in most cases, but a use of systemic steroids, usually oral or um, an antibiotic or both. So there's a lot of features in that that are kind of moving parts that there aren't consistent. I mean, in our group overall, there will be doctors that have different thresholds of prescribing a steroid or an antibiotic, these multi-center, um, multinational trials. You can see the different features of treatment of exacerbations based on the local culture of the clinical practice overall. And we know that patients who have a chronic disease, they underreport their symptoms overall. So all this does is under-really report and um, this coupling of patient recognition with getting a clinician that treats them is, is pretty much a weakness and having like an objective definition of a new change in the disorder. Um, so what we really need is a biomarker or an objective marker to tell us when this event occurs. It's different from the chronic pattern of the disease. And it's not for any lack of trying that people have tried to identify what are those um, biomarkers, either uh, a single biomarker or an aggregate. And I think of 33 grand, uh, trials that have been conducted, there hasn't been any consistent um, kind of like biomarker that's been identified to be replicated that can identify when an exacerbation is. The other thing that's different about an exacerbation is that there's many different factors that could trigger that. It can be an infection, bacterial or viral. It could be a change in environment with temperature or air quality. And we treat these, um, these exacerbations of the disease similarly but they can be very different etiologies that, triggering it, that trigger it overall. So attempts of trying to be more discriminative by looking at cultures haven't been really helpful by looking at procalcitonin-based protocols to indicative of bacterial infections. Well, it might decrease antibiotic use, but it doesn't really um, change much in what we do with the clinical outcome overall. Some of these features of trying to do these regimes are somewhat cost prohibitive to, to embrace on a broad-based application overall. So I think that, you know, we're still wanting for an objective marker of an exacerbation of the disease, and we really have to just keep pushing the field to be able to determine that. So uh, we can eventually be to a place where cardiology or um, you know, endocrinology is with diabetes that we have a more objective marker that we can use the base therapy in an event to find an event. Do you think that we under-recognize COVD exacerbations? I, I know there's data that obviously with, with journals and with more close communication and home-based therapy yeah. that pick up. So do you think we, in general that we underestimate or under, under-recognize exacerbations? Yeah, I think we do, and I actually think we're looking at the wrong thing overall. I mean, some of the telemedicine-based studies have shown that, you know, if you take a patient with COPD and you follow them three, for 365 days, their symptoms each day and their peak flow, the patient may have two or three times where they've gotten steroid or antibiotic, and there's a slight blip up on their daily burden of symptoms, but overall, they're symptom symptomatic, having cough and mucus and shortness of breath 80% of the time. So I don't think it's because the patients are not aware of what the symptoms they have. I think they are so uh, down-regulated by responding to something they have in a, you know, a permutation of almost every day 
but they don't see how that event is that much different than the next day. So I, I do think if we look at the burden of the disease overall, that's the trajectory that we want to change, not just like periodic treatment two or three right. times a year, but trying to change the patient's performance and her symptomatology on a daily basis. Yep. So I do Thanks. think they underreport, vastly underreport. So one of the things that, that the report uh, that you published, Jerry, talked a lot about was, you know, the prevention of exacerbations, and you obviously touched on azithromycin and reflumolast and, and mucoregulators. Uh, so give, give us an idea, you know, in the absence of, of obviously comparative data among the different modalities, yeah. how do you approach prevention? When do you use one versus the other, and what are the features that say, I need to do something else besides intermittent prednisone and antibiotics and bronchodilators, et cetera? Yeah, for well, for the azithromycin and reflumolast, I think those studies are um, that have been done, although they haven't compared one to the other one, are similar in the in the standpoint that both of them are looking at patients that are have a high disease burden based on exacerbation and are otherwise on optimal medical treatment, not only the pharmacologic treatment, but like in some cases done rehab. And I know in the azithromycin trial, about 60% of them were on um, long-term oxygen or prescribed long-term oxygen. So this is add-on therapy. And I think in the case of azithromycin, um, by using the macro trial and then the evolving data that's been used in other studies looking at a macrolide antibiotic, um, as you know, the bronchiectasis literature and then in the uh, severe persistent asthma group, it appears that that class of drug does have some salutary benefit on decreasing exacerbation frequency on a range of diseases that cause chronic airflow obstruction. What we do know in some of the studies, though, in patients that have chronic bronchitis, zithromycin didn't have a preferential benefit. In those patients that were current smokers, it didn't have a preferential benefit. In those people that weren't on inhaled corticosteroids, it ended up having a greater benefit than those who were on ICS therapy. So there are some features of the disease that makes that a little bit different than uh, the use of the other agents. Also, as you know, macrolide, have some interaction with other cardiac drugs that makes it prohibitive in some patients just because of interference with their cardiac drugs overall, so can't really use it in that group. However, if you look at the reflumolast data, it really stands out with their chronic bronchitic phenotype group overall, and that's, you know, I think one of the differentiators from what we know from the macrolide therapies right now where you could tend to use that drug. And the side effect profile, as you know, is different between the drugs. I mean, you end up to have uh, more macrolide resistance and people use it, although it might not cause a clinical infection, at least in the macro study, that ended up important at one year of therapy, whereas you don't have that with reflumolast. And then the side effects of nausea and GI toxicity are a little bit different between the groups. So I think you balance what you're trying to treat with their clinical features of the disease that studies have indicated where one drug may work better than the other one, and then look at the tolerance or side effects of the therapies overall. So this is obviously not addressed in, um, in, the, in the report, but where you and I work in the same, uh, the same city, we see a lot of patients with NTM. We certainly see lots yeah. of women with NTM. So, you know, my practice in patients who I'm going to use azithromycin to reduce exacerbations in a very well-characterized bronchiectasis population, I, I look for, and, and really I try to get sputums to, before I go in, to avoid monotherapy. So is there a role for that in COPD patients? There certainly, there are patients with COPD who get, you know, concurrent 
not to provoke some mycobacterial infections. Do you use the CT? How, how do you approach that? Do, do you worry about that? Well, I think that sounds practice to be able to do that. And I, I do, I echo that. And I also do that overall. We don't have, you know, really much literature guidance to show that's the right thing to do, but I don't think there's any reason that, uh, you know, you don't need a parachute to know that when you jump from a plane, you, you should use one. So I think that that's wise not to give monotherapy in someone where you think MAC colonization or MAC disease is an important feature. So I agree with that. So in deference to our, our, let's just say, duration of experience, Jerry, rather than our age, yeah. <laughs> we, should we ever use the alphalone anymore? Is there a role for the drug that you and I grew up with anymore? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, there was a recent paper that was um, published in JAMA uh, by David Price and colleagues where they uh, really took the, the last hypothesis for the alphalone use, was to use it as a upregulator for um, – NRF2 is an anti-inflammatory agent, and see if, like, the lower-dose theophylline may have a benefit on exacerbation reduction. And that was a well-done study that was uh, done in Scotland, and they really didn't see any benefit to that drug overall. And they used a weight-based um, kind of approach to that. So, it, I mean, it was extremely well done, and they used a patient group that was a blend of academic and clinical practice centers overall. So, you know, that that didn't seem like, um, you know, even the low-dose therapy overall would be beneficial. Now, there are some studies that show in um, different patient populations that in some patients, theophylline may have an additional benefit for uh, exacerbation reduction, but I think we would, most people would consider that as a third or fourth-line therapy to consider overall and really to be careful that the the toxicity or the side effect that a drug doesn't weigh, outweigh any benefit. I think we have better drugs right now. And new drugs in the future are PD-3, um, PD-4 inhibitors that uh, might be beneficial. Thank you. Um, how about prednisone for COPD exacerbation, Jerry? Um, obviously, there are salutary benefits of, of prednisone, but what's the what do you think the best evidence-based regimen uh, for prednisone should be? Is it one-size-fits-all, or do you use... You know, 40 milligrams for five days. Do you do a tapering regimen? Um, so, what's the what's the gold approach to it, and 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 what are your um, approaches different? Well, there's a couple ways to address this. I, I think that from the the general statement sort of uh, approach is that we suggest now that maybe five to ten days of acute treatment of um, 30 to 40 milligrams a day of prednisone is enough. Uh, and that's based on the REDUCE study and more recent other recent studies that suggest a shorter, lower-dose therapy might be beneficial. It's important to recognize that some of those studies might not have treated as severe a patient population as some prior studies may have treated overall. So right. I think that's one of the caveats to remember. I think one of the better studies that's been more recently done um, was a small single-center study, but it's being done in a multi-center larger study right now by Monobafidil in the UK, was the use of the peripheral blood eosinophil as a biomarker to look at what discriminant value that may have to indicate 
the acute response to steroids during acute exacerbation. And what Mana found from that study, it was published in a blue journal a couple years ago, was that if you had 2% or greater eosinophils in peripheral blood, um, you would respond to systemic steroids. If you had less than that, you had no significant response, and basically you could avoid giving steroids to all patients that present with an acute exacerbation. So I think what we talked about earlier about how to use peripheral blood eosinophil to look at patients that respond to ICS, that maybe in the future would also have, you know, the right size of therapy for patient group depending on what their blood biomarker status was during acute exacerbation overall. Um, but I think we need that data to, to be certain. Um, so how about antibiotics, Jerry? So um, obviously many COPD exacerbations, if not a majority, are precipitated by what we think are is bacterial infection. So five days, seven days, is there any value? in? And obviously in, in patients with bronchiectasis and concurrent bronchiectasis, yeah. recommendations are longer. But for a straightforward um, exacerbation related to a respiratory infection, what do you do, five, seven, less, more? I think pretty much five to seven is what's recommended in most people overall. I think that that's also in line with most of the uh, kind of like use of antibiotics sooner, that it's based on clinical resolution rather than it is on any set time frame and just like continuing a course for 10 or 14 days, just to minimize the exposure that people might have to, to antibiotics or steroids, things that have potential side effects longer than what's needed to treat what you're treating. Right. So, Jerry, any other, um, any other thoughts or comments? And then the last thing is I just want you to, if you can, just uh, if you could summarize the major take-home message from the report for our, for our audience. So any last things that we didn't cover? And then what are the things that I and others who are listening should take away from the report? So I think from this report, it basically, you know, there's a lot that we know, and there's been a lot of changes in COPD in the last, 20, 10 years, five years, which has been dramatic. I mean, a disease that when I first trained where basically there wasn't much interest to study it or do it because there, people thought it was a self-inflicted disease and there wasn't really much you could do to change the course, has been completely turned on its head. I mean, there's a lot we can do with the disease, and it's not just self-inflicted overall. And there's ways that we can look at the disease overall in the pathobiology and make a difference for individual patients. I think that's um, last decades of research. And what this report shows, there's a lot we still don't know. There's many features of the disease that are unexplained. There's many things that we should be able to do to indicate people at risk and intercede hopefully in the future for targets that need to be identified that can change this trajectory of progressive airflow obstruction that happens over a lifetime of some individuals. Um, so I'm optimistic that, you know, what we've seen is a lot of change. Industry, NIH, other governmental bodies are interested in tackling this disease and just got to keep the pressure on and try to, like, work with patients and try to get better therapies for them. Amen. Amen, Jerry. Well, listen, uh, I think this has been a fantastic discussion, and I can't thank you enough for, for taking no, the time to participate, Jerry, really. And for our audience, I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, and I hope that you found today's discussion with Dr. Kreiner on the controversies in COPD as interesting and as provocative as I have. So until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you for joining in. <laughs>